Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 19th of March and this is episode number 55. In this programme, I talk to Dr Jonathan Boff from the University of Birmingham about his latest book titled Haig's Enemy, Crown Prince Rupert and Germany's War on the Western Front, published by OUP. I spoke to Jonathan from his office in Birmingham. Jonathan, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War? Uh, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. Um, yes, uh, my name's Jonathan Boff, obviously. I'm a, I'm a lecturer at the University of Birmingham, where I teach all kinds of different war studies-related things, but, but especially I concentrate on the First World War. And I've been studying the First World War particularly for about 10 years. And I suppose you know, the main reason why I got most interested in it was because I think of all the wars in our, in our past, with perhaps the exception of the, very mo- the, the most very recent, it's the one about which you can have the best argument. If you want to, it's quite hard to have an argument about the Hundred Years' War or uh, the Napoleonic Wars. People have been arguing about them for a long time and we've kind of reached a consensus. Your latest book is on the Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria. Why did you feel a book was needed on the Crown Prince? Well, I think there's, there's sort of three bits to the answer to, to that question, Tom. And, and the first and the sort of quickest one is that, at least so far as the British were concerned, he was the most important general uh, on the German side. Right the way through from October 1914 to the end of the war, every battle that the, the BEF fought had Ruprecht as the general in charge on the German side up against. So he was the direct counterpart of Sir John French. Then he was the direct counterpart of Sir Douglas Haig. He was, in a sense, he was was sort of Rommel to uh, Monty, uh, but in the First World War context. So although the rivalry between Ruprecht and Douglas Haig was never as intense as that between uh, Rommel and Monty in the Second World War, the second answer to that, and this is a bit longer, I suppose, is that a lot of the time, especially in the Commonwealth, uh, we tend to see the First World War almost entirely from the British uh, perspective. But obviously this was a war with two sides. And if you if you turn the First World War around and see it through German eyes, I think it makes us or gives us the chance to see the war in a completely new light. And, and following Ruprecht through the war, because he's so central to the to the war effort against the British, gives us a good chance to do that and, and gives us a chance to, to, to look at what we think we know in, in new and exciting ways. And the third bit to this, I think, is that he was actually an interesting chap in his own right. Fairly rare in that most of the First World War generals, as you know, don't actually have much of a, of a hinterland. But Ruprecht does. He's an interesting chap. He's interested in art. He's interested in travel. He lived in many ways a rather tragic life. And, and so one of the things that I wanted to explore with this book was the extent to which people like him, you know, the royals and aristocrats of, of Central Europe, really are, were washed away by the sort of onrush of modernity in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and, and to how far, or, or rather to what extent the mistakes that they made actually contributed to their own downfall. So who was Crown Prince Ruprecht? Can you tell us about his early life and how he became a Crown Prince? And what, what's his relationship to Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany? Well, if I go back a little bit, under the constitution of the, of the German Reich, the Kaiser was the Emperor of Germany and he was the King of Prussia. But Prussia was just one of several of the old independent kingdoms, which all together made up the German Empire. Uh, and Bavaria was the second most important of those kingdoms after, after Prussia. Others were places like Saxony and 
in Baden. For about 800 years, Bavaria had been ruled by a family called the Wittelsbachs, the most famous member of whom was probably Mad King Ludwig II, who's the bloke who was Wagner's patron in the 19th century and built all those sort of fairy tale castles, like the one that Walt Disney used for uh, Sleeping Beauty, I think it was. So Ruprecht was born in, in 1869. So he was 45 years old when the First World War broke out. He was educated at a public school. It was rare in those days. Most, most, of, most princes were still educated privately by tutors at home, but he went to a, to a public high school. Then he went off to Munich and to Berlin universities. And he was commissioned also into the, into the Bavarian army. So you can see that they're, they're educating a, a, fame, a, a future king. They're teaching him about constitutional law and government and politics and history. And they're t- teaching him about uh, the military uh, as well. He goes to the Staff Academy in Munich. Uh, he, he's a bit like, but well, I suppose he's a bit like um, you know William or Harry when they were younger. They have sort of two careers. They have their royal career, as it were, going around opening fate, and they have their military career. So through his military career, he he rises up through the ranks pretty quickly. Of course, partly because of who he is. <laughs> we need to be can't be naive about that. Uh, the fact that he's a prince helps him helps his advancement considerably. But also, he did work, as far as we can tell, pretty hard uh, at being a proper soldier. He wasn't just a toy soldier. He also played pretty hard uh, until he at least until he got married uh, and settled down. Uh, in about 1900. Uh, But sadly, his wife died very young, and only one of their five children uh, ended up reaching adulthood. The rest all died uh, tragically young. Uh, He became crown prince in 1913, when his father ascended ascended the throne as King Ludwig III. And then the next year, in 1914, uh, he was promoted and then was designated as uh, commander of the German Sixth Army. And that's how he marched off to fight in Lorraine in August 1914. It's probably just worth making clear for for, for people who aren't, who, who, who you know, don't know about this stuff, that each individual of one of these German kingdoms had their own army in peacetime. But when war broke out, the Kaiser became automatically the overall commander of the whole of the whole lot. And they and the model on which they were all organized was obviously very close to the Prussian model. Uh, anyway, so that's so that's that's how he got to the First World War. So war is declared. And what's Ruprecht's role in the German army on the Western Front? What exactly did he do? Right. Well, August, September 1914, the very early uh, weeks of the war, the battle, the so-called Battle of the Frontiers, he spent in Lorraine uh, fighting against the French. But by the middle of September 1914, the Germans had lost the Battle of the Marne in northern France, and Lorraine by, and Alsace by that stage were, had fallen into stalemate. So Ruprecht and most of his army were transferred north up to Belgium and set to march and try and get around the flank of the Entente. This is before the lines have solidified properly. There's still a war of movement uh, going on. So he, he tries to envelop the uh, the French uh, left flank, first of all along the line of the River Song, uh, and then around Arras, and then finally uh, Ypres, of course, famous battle. And that's where he first encounters the, the BEF in, uh, in October 1914. By the end of 1914, the trenches are set, the front has solidified, stalemate has set in, uh, and Ruprecht has moved a little bit south, and he's put in charge of the again, still in command of 6th Army, put in charge of the defence of Artois, uh, the area around Arras. There, in the course of 1915, he beats off all the Anglo-French attacks, battles that we've all heard of, Neuve-Chapelle, Luce, a lot of fighting for Vimy Ridge, uh, that kind of stuff. 1916, obviously... Uh, Early in early in 1916, the Germans attack at Verdun. That's not July 1916. The Allies attack on the Somme. The French and the British attack together on the Somme. So that's and that's in the next door sector to where Ruprecht is in command. But in August 1916, there's a bit of a uh, 
change of management, if you like, within the German army. Uh, Ruprecht is promoted, made field marshal, and put in charge of an army group, which is responsible for holding the line pretty much from Champagne all the way to the sea. And so he's given overall responsibility for fighting the Battle of the Somme for the, from the German side, which is how he keeps, spends the rest of 1916. And then in 1917, also, uh, Ruprecht was in charge of the, of, of the defense in some of the iconic battles of the First World War, like Arras, like Third Ypres, Passchendaele, uh, and indeed uh, the Battle of Cambrai. Until March 1918, it's his army group that is the spearhead for much of the German offensives against the BEF, uh, launched on the 21st of March uh, 1918. And then finally, throughout the campaign known as the Hundred Days from November 1918, it's Ruprecht who is you know, on the, on the receiving end of the main thrust of the, the Anglo-French, uh, or sorry, the Allied uh, offensive uh, across northern France. So he's basically every single battle you see the British in, he's on the other side. So from your work on Rupert's career, what does it tell us about the German army, their way of war, and ultimately why they lost the conflict? Well, I think this is the most inter- one of the most interesting bits about, uh, about the book. And I think in particular what it does is, is if you look at Rupert's career and the way the way the war is fought from through his perspective, it blows up a huge myth uh, about the German army. And that myth, I think, is, is a very commonly held one, that the, the, the German army, you know, regardless of what you think about the strategic uses it was put to, God, or let alone the political purposes it was made to serve in the first 50 years of the, of the 20th century, that in a purely technical terms, as, as, a, as a tactical instrument, you know, it was superb and better than most of the that it came up against. That's the myth. Uh, and, and the myth is based on an idea, I think, that, that the German army is more rational, more meritocratic than the British and French armies, for instance, that it has a very flexible system of command. Uh, the German word is Auftragstaktik. The modern jargon for that is, is mission command. And that, that this command system enables very fast responses and great flexibility uh, on the part of, of the German army and such that it, it ends up learning and adapting to the challenges of the new warfare uh, fast and with great skill. So that's how it develops stormtroop tactics. That's how it develops defense in depth, the kind of tactics which are often held up today as being the foundations of how, of how modern armies uh, operate on the battlefield. But I think when you look at the reality of the German army as you see it through, through Ruprecht's experience, what you find out is that actually it's the weaknesses within the German army which contributes significantly to its own defeat. Senior commanders interfering all the time that they're leaving their, the men on the spot to get on with it is, is just clearly false, I think. The officer corps riven with cliques and patronage. This is very far from a meritocracy. The officer corps is taking its lead, really, from the Kaiser in the way that he runs his state and his army, very highly personalized and very um, irrational or unrational, perhaps would be a better way to put it. And as a result, the German army gets outfought and outfought by the British and French and later the Americans in 1918. So in the race to innovate, it's actually the British and the French who win, come out ahead, such that by the end of 1918, the Germans are uh, being presented with, with, with allied tactics to which they have no answer. And so I think that is, that is the core of it. The German army, in a sense, defeats itself because of its own inherent, inherent weakness. I think also, while we're here, I mean, I think it tells us quite a lot about the British and French armies. First of all, it reminds us that the main enemy, so far as the Germans were concerned throughout most of the war, was not the British at all. Uh, it was the French. Uh, even by 1918, uh, Ruprecht still saw the French as the main threat. One of the reasons why they were happy to attack the British in March 1918 was precisely because they thought they were less skilled soldiers than the French were, or less of a military threat, I should, I should say. Uh, and the second one is, I think, or the second aspect of this is that, you know, those many of us who believe that the British Army, the BEF, climbed some kind of a learning curve in the course of, of the First World War, I think, well, I think Ruprecht's experience challenges some of the preconceptions we might have 
have about that. And in particular, I think, challenges the idea that learning was something that only the British did. Learning is effectively actually a, a, another front in the war. All the participants are frantically innovating as quickly as they possibly they're all They're all at it the whole time. It just so happens that the British and French come out at the, uh, ahead at the end. Um, and the second point, which is, which is harder to really tie down, and, and it's hard to separate out from what Ruprecht really thought from just the sort of stereotypes about the British Army that the Germans generally held in this period. But, but, but is that if you if you read his diaries, and that's what this book is largely based on, um, it's hard to detect much of an improvement in British skill, so far as he's concerned, in the course of the war. That the, the, the things that make the British dangerous in 1914 or 1915, uh, and particularly in the second half of the war, are courage and material superiority. It's not necessarily technical skill or the ability of the, of the British army to do the things that Germans like to do, like manoeuvre on the battlefield and exploit success. I read a interesting blog you had on your um, website about the debate around operations versus tactics in terms of I think mm. there's some people who argue that the Germans were tactically very good but operationally very weak in terms of actually moving forces across the battlefield logistics and the planning direction mm-hmm. setting objectives what's your view on that sort of debate I, I think the Germans are much stronger tactically than uh, they are operationally I think that the, the, the the, the strength, or maybe it's the weakness of the German army, actually I think it's a weakness, it is that they see everything in tactical terms. So for them, the solution to every problem is a tactical one. They, they think that by tweaking their tactics, they will solve the operational problems, which may be true, but they also, and here's the real problem, they think that tactical solutions can help them help them solve the strategic problem. And therefore the German military is never really, or never gets to grips with the idea that Germany, they are strategically stuffed. And, and it doesn't matter how clear they are on the battlefield, that, that, that reality is not going to change. The Germans just can't accept that because the military is, because the army is so married to the idea that it, that it is you know, technically so excellent and that it can think its way through these problems. I just don't think that that actually reflects the reality. I suppose just following on from that, the, the, I suppose the, the obvious thing that occurs to me, which I'm complete, probably completely wrong on, is why didn't the Germans invent the tank? Or- I don't think it's a separate debate, uh, but I don't think tanks would have been the answer for Germany anyway. Uh, and I, and I, think they, I think they realized that. Uh, I think one has to be a little bit careful about the benefit of hindsight here. From, the 19, you know, with, from a 1960s, 70s, 80s, later perspective, they, they, they look like these huge maneuver machines. But of course, that's not how they were used, even in most of the Second World War, apart from in some very extreme circumstances like the desert uh, or the steppe. Uh, in, uh, in, in, on the Eastern Front. Most of the time, they were used in the Second World War and certainly in the First World War as effectively armoured infantry support vehicles with big guns on them. The Germans, I think, quite simply, partly because they, didn't, they wanted to use their steel for other stuff, so, that, so they, they didn't see tanks as a manoeuvre weapon and therefore they didn't see how they could integrate them into the kind of fast-moving warfare they wanted to be fighting. Uh, they thought they had their own ways of doing that using you know, infiltration tactics and, and, and artillery tactics combined you know, they thought would be more effective anyway. So what, what happens to Ruprecht after the war? Very interesting career. Um, right at the end of, of November, or rather the beginning of November 1918, obviously as the German position collapses, they have sent uh, delegates over to negotiate an armistice with, with Marshal Foch. Revolution breaks out in Germany, uh, and including in, in Bavaria, in Munich. And Munich is seized by left-wing revolutionaries uh, who form a government uh, and... Ruprecht's father is effectively forced to abdicate. Um, and, and within the German army at the same time, they're setting up uh, Soviets, you know, um, workers and soldiers councils to, to, to run everything. 
So he, not entirely unreasonably, given that the Tsar had only been murdered a few months before, thinks this doesn't seem too healthy a development. So the villains which is named with the help of the, the Spanish ambassador uh, in Belgium. And he lives in he lives there for a little while until things start to calm down uh, back in back in Germany and back in Bavaria in particular. Eventually, after, by about the autumn of 1919, so a year after the war, he can, he can go home. Uh, he remarries and starts a, a second family. And, and he spends most of the 1920s trying to sort of still carry out, although, although he's lost his throne, he has no constitutional position. He's still doing the sort of opening things, doing the royal sort of duties, if you like, particularly sponsoring or working with veterans uh, groups for obvious reasons. And, and I think hoping that he might be restored to the throne or to something, to something like it. But his feeling throughout is that 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 needs to be done in a constitutional manner, uh, and that he can't become, you know, the prisoner of politics. He has to be seen to stand above politics, ever resume the throne. Now, uh, inevitably, there are people in Munich who are interested in either restoring the monarchy or in pretending to restore the monarchy because they have their own purposes. And again, inevitably, they're on the right, and that means the Nazis, because of course the Nazis, uh, you know, Munich is the spiritual home of the of the Nazi party uh, in many ways. So he meets. Uh, Hitler uh, in about 1922, early 1923. Doesn't like him much. Not terribly surprising, really. You can imagine from Ruprecht's point of view as a sort of, you know, the uber aristocrat meeting this com very common little man who'd been one of his corporals. There's never going to be a meeting of minds, perhaps. And then things get a bit murky. You'll know that in 1923, there was an attempt by the Nazi party to seize power in Munich, uh, led by Ludendorff and Hitler. Ludendorff, with whom Ruprecht by now doesn't get on, uh, and Hitler, who he doesn't like very much like. However, we don't know exactly how involved Ruprecht was in, in, the, in the attempted coup uh, itself. But certainly Hitler blamed him for its failure. Coup collapses. Hitler is unfortunately not killed. Uh, some of his uh, colleagues are. He's arrested, put in prison for not very long as it happens. And he blames Ruprecht for the failure of the coup, or he's one of the people that, Rup that he blames for the failure of the coup, which of course doesn't mean anything, because Hitler's pretty good at blaming anybody for anything. There's no necessary connection between what you've done and, and whether Hitler bl blames you for things. Doesn't matter very much in 1923. 1933, it starts to matter a lot, because obviously Hitler is now in power in Berlin. As part of the attempt to preserve a level of Bavarian independence, there are some moves amongst politicians in Bavaria to enable them to keep the Berlin government at arm's length, those is the idea. And that's, this seems to have some political, some, sorry, some popular support. However, and Ruprecht is kind of happy to go along with it as long as all the politicians agree. But of course, the politicians can't agree. And while the politicians in Munich are arguing about how exactly they can make this work within the Constitution, the Nazis, being the Nazis, tear up the Constitution and say, well, this, here's the way it's going to be. So, so Ruprecht Ruprecht, I beg your pardon, is kind of forced into a sort of internal exile in Munich for the next six years. When the war breaks out, he's warned that obviously now it's wartime, human rights are going to be even lower priority than they were pre. Uh, it might be a good idea for him to take a very long holiday overseas. So he goes off to, uh, to Italy uh, and lives in exile in Italy during the first part of the war, protected by the Pope in 1944, and particularly after the assassination attempt on Hitler in July 1944, and the Nazis just start lashing out at anybody. At this stage, uh, Ruprecht is living in Florence. He tries to... Uh, so he goes into hiding in Florence. Hides in an apartment belonging to a friend of his. The Gestapo, which is just as well, the Gestapo come looking for him. Uh, can't find him. Eventually, the, 
Florence is liberated by the Allies uh, and Ruprecht is safe. However, his family, uh, who uh, had been elsewhere, uh, are arrested by the Gestapo, uh, locked up in concentration camps for the duration of the war. They're finally liberated in April 1945 by the Americans. I think, I think they're in Dachau or near Dachau uh, at the time. Uh, and his wife very, very nearly dies. She, you know, she weighs uh, 40 kilograms or less uh, when she is uh, when when she is released. You know, a, a tragic story, really. Um, uh, of a man who who fell out with the Nazis uh, and was jolly lucky probably to survive uh, to survive at all um, and uh, owed some of that perhaps to his to his position and then by then you know he's what seventy six years old uh, he's starting to to he, he he goes back to to doing his sort of um, you know laying stones to hospitals and that kind of stuff activities uh, in in Germany but you know, he's never going to have the same kind of influence uh, again uh, and then he dies in nineteen fifty there's some if you if you if you look on YouTube there's actually a terrific pathé newsreel of his of his funeral uh, he basically gets a state funeral from the Bavarian government with all these old boys in lederhosen and the old the old uniforms of the Bavarian army uh, all escorting his coffin uh, to the uh, to, to, to to his burial place and I think there were something like fifty thousand people filed past the lying in. One of his German biographers calls him a, a, a king without a crown. So after spending so much time with Ruprecht, how would you rate him as a military commander and as a person? And I suppose the question is, would you invite him round for a barbecue? <laughs> I don't think he'd come. I think he'd think I was much too common. <laughs> Um, well, look, I mean, you know, you do have to have some respect for the fact that he managed to hold the Allies at bay for, or helped to hold the Allies at bay anyway, for, for nearly four years in, you know, in the most terrible war to date, uh, after all. And, and he did win a series of, of major battles. Now, in 1918, that kind of turned around, uh, and he started to lose a lot of battles. But I'm not sure that, that was only his fault. Yeah, and Ludendorff in particular, I think, um, must carry a lot of responsibility for, for being a right nuisance, uh, essentially. So far as whether I liked him is concerned, um, well, I mean, I think our attitudes are, you know, 150 years apart, really. Uh, and so they're very different, his attitude to uh, something. You know, he was certainly an anti-Semite, for instance. You can't beat around the bush on that. Didn't think much of Jews. I think a lot of our attitudes would be sufficiently far apart, but I don't think we'd ever be be friends. Uh, he was also clearly, a, frankly, a, a pretty prickly individual. You know, he, he was not easy on uh, his subordinates or his sub superiors uh, at, at times, uh, I, I don't think. He, he had a pretty well-developed sense of his own worth, let's put it like that. Um, so we probably have too much in common on that front to be friends uh, as well. Um, but, I, but I do think that uh, I did get to respect him. He comes across as someone who was pretty straight uh, and pretty honest, and actually most of the time pretty fair uh, as well. So I think I think, you know, he's the kind of person with whom one could do business. You might have him as a business partner, for instance, even if you didn't necessarily uh, want to live with him uh, every day. Finally, when and where is your book available? Uh, it'll be published at the end of the month, at the end of March. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from OUP.com. Uh, and it should, in theory, be in all good bookshops. It's supposed to be widely distributed and widely sold. It's only 25 quid. Um, so if it isn't in your local bookshop, well, please ask them to stock it. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. Marvellous. Thank you very much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.